Hi everyone. My name is Maggie and I am a, mem a board member with SF Insight. Um, tonight we have a very special guest leading our sit and discussion. We'd like to warmly welcome um, uh, Frank Ostaseski. And uh, I have a bio here and I could read it shortly. Uh, Frank is an internationally respected Buddhist teacher and visionary co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project and founder of the Meta Institute. He has lectured at Harvard Medical School, the Mayo Clinic, Wisdom 2.0, and teaches at major spiritual centers around the globe. His groundbreaking work has been featured on the Bill Moyers PBS series, On Our Own Terms, highlighted on the Oprah Winfrey Show, and honored by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He is the author of The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. Frank, thank you for being here and welcome. Happy to be with you, Mackie, and everybody else here. I want to put this on gallery view so I can see everyone. You maybe have me spotlighted. I see. Okay. Um, well, I'm happy to be with everyone. And Maggie, can you um, make it so I can see everybody? So I can see, I think you might have you and I spotlighted. I want to see the see the community, if we could. Um, anyway, while she's doing that, I just want to say hello to everyone and nice to be back with San Francisco Insight, my dear buddy, uh, Eugene Cash, and, uh, and all of you. And, uh, you know, as is our habit here, we'll, we'll sit for about a half an hour. And um, just before we sit, or as we're beginning to sit, maybe is a better way to say it, um, you know, it's good to do some preliminaries between sitting, not to rush into sitting. You know, we're always rushing into things. So let's take our time and not be in a hurry to meditate. So I like to begin with a posture. And instead of taking a posture, let's discover it. So I, I like to rock back side to side. And as I do that, I can feel those two sit bones in my butt. Yeah. And um, you can discover where you have pressure on one more than the other. And you could find kind of an equal pressure. Yeah? And then I like to rock forward and back. Partly because it reminds me of my grandmother and being in her lap. But also you can discover when you're leaning into your experience too much or when you're pulling back from your experience too much. And you can see that that posture gets reflected in the way the mind um, works with objects. And then sitting with a sense of self-respect and uh, dignity, yeah? being self-supporting, allowing the back to strength of the back uh, to really um, support us, really letting the skin just drape over the bones. Yeah? So this way, the meditation's already begun. Yeah? So if you leave, if you prefer to sit with your eyes closed, you can do that, or partially open, or even wide open. It's okay. And then fling open all the doors and windows of the senses. The doors of perception, yeah? Hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling. Maybe even take a moment to see something. See if there's five things that you can see right now. Just name them to yourself. Your computer screen, other things in the room. Name five things for yourself, just so you open that door. 
And then maybe four things that you hear. The sound of my voice, maybe the sounds outside the room where you are, or the building where you're living. And then three experiences of touch. The fabric of your clothing against your skin, perhaps, or the air on your face and hands. Just name three. And two smells, two smells. Well, the smell of your own self, or that are in the room, or maybe what you um, had for lunch. Says start video. And then one experience of taste, tasting the flavor in your in your own uh, mouth. Beautiful. Five, four, three, two, one, blast off. Here we go. Let's meditate now for half an hour and see what we can discover. Okay? Just allowing things to show themselves to you, to display themselves on the screen of your awareness without any struggle or needing to do anything to make anything happen or to stop anything from happening. Beautiful. Okay.
So Maggie, I think we have some announcements first, huh? Yes, thank you, Frank. Okay, everyone. So we do have several upcoming um, retreats that Eugene and Pam wanted us to share. And then also we'll do a, a Donna talk for tonight. The first one, Spirit Rocks Dedicated Practitioners Program, DDP7. Um, the enrollment for the application for enrollment, uh, I guess, has been launched. Um, it's available now. And this is a specific program for committed practitioners of insight meditation to study the earliest Buddhist, Buddhist teachings of the Theravadan tradition over a two-year period. And Frank, did you have any comments about this particular program? No, except that I think it's an incredible way to deepen your practice. I mean, we can sit on Sunday nights, we can sit on our own, but there's something about studying as well. It isn't an academic program, but there's something about practice and studying that really deepens our practice, helps us to have clear comprehension of what we're doing. You know, just noticing our experience isn't enough. We have to develop insight into it. And this is a program that really helps you to do that. So I really highly recommend it. It's a great program. Yeah. Thank you. I just put the link in the chat box if anyone wanted to look uh, more into that. So that's the first upcoming program. The next, July 30th to August 1st. Pam Weiss and Josen Tamori Gibson will be offering an online retreat through Spirit Rock called Do No Harm, The Precepts as Practice of Compassion and Connection. Um, and that is an online retreat as well. And so I'll put the link in the chat. The next event August 11th to the 15th, Pam and Eugene will be offering a five-day online insight medita meditation retreat hosted through the online retreat center. Um, and I'll also put the link in the chat shortly after announcements. And the next one, an on-land retreat, uh, September 13th to the 20th at Spirit Rock. Uh, the Days of Awe, Discovering Our Humanity, Eugene Cash, Victoria Carey, Howard Kahn, and Hakeem Tafari will also be leading that on-land retreat. Um, and the next topic here, the Donna Talk, tonight will be given by one of our community members, Cameron Conaway. Uh -huh. Hi, thank you, Maggie. Hi there, dear Sangha. Uh, as many of you know, Donna is the practice of giving um, that for some 2,500 years now uh, has allowed the teachings of the Buddha to remain living uh, and be a dynamic part of our lives. Uh, Donna can come in a variety of forms, um, including volunteering to help the Sangha uh, and as financial contributions, which at SF Insight go towards uh, helping to support our teachers. And in researching Donna uh, a little bit, I came across a piece, uh, actually in a, it's a series of essays um, written by Bhikkhu Bodhi that I wanted to share here, just a quote from it. So he wrote, quote, viewed as the quality of generosity, 
giving has a particularly intimate connection to the entire movement of the Buddha's path. For the goal of the path is the destruction of greed, hate, and delusion. And the cultivation of generosity directly debilitates greed and hate while facilitating that pliancy of mind that allows for the eradication of delusion. I love that pliancy of mind. Um, so for those of you who can and feel compelled to make a financial contribution, we will also add a link to that in our chat here. So thank you and back to you, Maggie. Thank you, Cameron. All right, I can pass it off to Frank. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Cameron. Um, and again, my, I'm so happy to be here with the Sangha again. It's been a while since I was with you. You know, sometimes I find myself scared these days. Do you? At least sometimes I do. Hey, Frank, I'm sorry. Um, I think some people are having trouble hearing you. Maybe, um, I don't know what to do about that. Um, do you have, um, you don't have me muted, right? So, huh. how is that now? Sound good? Looks like it's okay. Okay. If you can't hear me, tell Maggie again. So I was saying that, that sometimes I get scared, and, and uh, I imagine you do too, um, especially these days. I get scared. Isolation, those things can generate fear. You know, when my son was young, maybe five or so, I remember coming into his room one night and to say goodnight, you know, and turn off the lights and getting ready for bed. And he said, they're here, Papa. And I said, what? And he said, monsters. I said, monsters. Now, I could have said, just go to sleep, turn out the light. But instead, I jumped into bed with him. I, we pulled the covers up over our head. And I said, where are they? And he said, they're in the closet. I said, in the closet? Oh, my God, we better stay here in the bed then. So we buried ourselves in the blankets and the pillows. And uh, after there for a while, I said, do you want to go see if they're still here? You want to go look? And he said, yeah. So I said, okay, and we climbed down onto the floor and we went hand and knees and crawled across the floor to the closet, you know, and I, I told him to bring some pillows. And so when we got to the closet door, I said, when I open the door, you throw in those pillows and scare those monsters and um, hopefully they'll go away. So I counted one, two, three. And I opened the door and he threw in the pillows and I closed the door and, you know, this crashing sound came down as his toys all fell to the ground, you know. And then we opened the closet and sure enough, no monsters, no monsters in the closet. Now, I think it turns out that we as grown-ups are not so different, actually. Um, there are monsters that we face that feel maybe bigger and uglier than the ones we, we felt when we were kids. But sometimes, just like my son, um, our fears boil down to the stories we tell ourselves. In fact, just before this talk, I got scared. Um, some of you know that I had, in the last while, I had some strokes and seizures, 
And so it really affects my brain and it gets quite scrambled. And it's especially difficult for me to manage any type of technology. Um, so I, I had one mic, but it wasn't working. I put on this one and I thought, oh my God, I better hurry up because I'll, I'll leave them all hanging. You know, I got scared. I got really scared that I would leave you all hanging. Fortunately, I, I found another, um, uh, I had another way of working with it. I found um, another microphone that worked out really well. That helped. But what also is important is to take fear as our teacher. And learning to work really skillfully with it can lead us to some degree of freedom. And, you know, when this is happening, we quickly see that we're operating from a place of fear that we have little trust in reality. We feel separated from ourselves, from others, from the possibility of unity. And for many of us, at least, that's our default position. You know, in Buddhist circles, uh, this cut-off sense of self is sometimes called the body of fear, the body of fear. And it takes a physical form, actually, of this kind of tension around us, a stiffening in our bodies, a kind of thickening of our defenses against the fear. And, and the mind also can become rigid and confused, and the heart closes. Now, a separation does need to occur, actually. But it's not the one that we might have imagined or have practiced doing, you know, separating ourselves off from others. It, it, you know, it's helpful to distinguish between our emotional state and the object, which we're afraid of. So when we obsess about our objects, our fear, you know, the objects of our fear, insects or identity or rejection or government interference or pandemics or speaking in public, we avoid contact with the emotion itself, actually. And like monsters in the closet, the thing we fear may not even exist. But all of our attention is turned toward the illusion, as rather has turned that illusion into a reality. But when we discern the difference between the emotion and the object, we can see the part we play in in the process. Then we begin to unhook ourselves, we could say, from overwhelm. We can relax and, and temporarily hold the fear in the container of the body. Supported by steady breathing, um, we can examine the mind's operations. We can look at our beliefs. We can look at our assumptions and memories and the stories that underpin our fear. And in this way, we can reduce the reactivity. Yeah. So for me, when I, when I was a young person, when I was a teenager, I lived in a pretty crazy household. Both my parents were severe alcoholics, and it was very violent in my house. And so when I would come home from school or someplace, I'd, I remember putting my hand on the brass doorknob, and I would just stop because I didn't know what I would find on the other side of the door. And it really scared the hell out of me. Later, when I began to develop insight practice, opening doors became a central practice in my life. And that gradually with practice and mindfulness, um, I placed my learned hypervigilance 
I saw rather, I replaced my learned hypervigilance with more mindfulness. And that led to a process of healing old wounds, yeah? So fear is a normal human reaction. And sometimes it's really necessary for our survival, and particularly when there's a perceived threat, you know? It's reasonable to want to protect ourselves and those we love. But living from a place of fear can really narrow our vision and shrink our lives down to what's comfortable. And driven by fear alone, we stop using our common sense and we make unwise decisions. I think the willingness to sit with fear is an act of courage. You know, in the old Buddhist texts, they refer to the great and courageous bodhisattvas. And these were beings who had the fortitude to stand with suffering that might bring the rest of us to our knees. And it's not that these people, these beings, had no fear. Rather, they were able to maintain courageous presence while they were afraid. They're open to fear. They're willing to hold it. They're, they're willing to learn from it. They're willing to be transformed by it. And in that way, it serves as a catalyst, a kind of doorway to compassion and a, and a pathway to transformation. I have a dear friend of mine who um, is a hospice worker now. But many years ago, many years ago, she was having a barbecue in her backyard with her husband and um, uh, their good friend, uh, Alberto, and their children. And uh, while they were having the barbecue, having a few beers in the backyard, uh, Janet got this feeling that something was not quite right. And she said, I'm going to go check on the kids, you know. And, um, you know, her husband said, no, no, just stay here. They're fine. They're just playing in the front yard. But she needed to go. And so she left the backyard and walked through the house. And as she walked through the house, Alberto's son came running past her really fast. Well, while she was on her way, she heard this bang, you know. And when she got out to the front of her house and out to the street in front of her house, she saw her son, her young son, Jack, who had been hit by a car. And the car drove off. And she screamed, and her husband and Alberto came running, and they scooped up Jack and put him in the pickup truck and drove to the hospital. Alberto was a doctor. And while they were in the car, you know, while Alberto was doing CPR, actually, to try and revive Jack, all Janet could see was that Jack's leg was broken and bleeding. And, you know, she, this was terrible for her. She just thought, oh, my God, what kind of a mother am I? I've let the limb... I've let him be out there and he broke his leg. She couldn't take in the fact that he wasn't breathing. And they got to the hospital and they hooked him up to life support. And after some time, a while, the doctors said that, you know, um, his brain was badly damaged and Jack wasn't going to survive without being continually living on a ventilator. And so they made the hard decision to take him off the ventilator. And they again scooped up Jack and they brought him back in the pickup truck back home, you know. And um, on the way, the, the road that they were driving on, this is in rural Idaho, the road they were driving on sort of hugs a river. 
and Janet looked out over the river and uh, she saw the full moon over the river and this kind of intuitive guidance came to her and basically it said to her I cannot let this accident destroy me I cannot let this accident destroy me then they got home and they laid out Jack in the living room and or in his room I think and um, later the mortuary people came and the police called to say that it had been a hit and run and that the driver had actually turned himself in and acknowledged that he'd, he'd done this. And um, she couldn't sleep that night. And in the morning, you know, she was raging, furious at this driver. How could anyone do that, you know? And in the morning, there was a knock on the door. And she opened her door, and through the screen door, she saw this man standing there. And she realized instinctively that this was the man who'd driven the car that had hit her son and killed her son. And looking at the anguish on his face, something opened in her. And when she told me about this, I remember this Longfellow quote. He said, you know, if we could read the secret history of our enemies... We would find in each person's life enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all our hostility. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with Janet. And so this grieving mom, she invited the hit-and-run driver into her living room. And the driver sat on the couch and he took full responsibility for what he'd done. He said he didn't realize he'd hit Jack. He was actually on his way to his daughter's wedding. And he was late and he was going too fast and he was preoccupied with his daughter's wedding and he didn't know until he'd gotten home and he saw a mark on his car that he'd hit something he heard something but he hadn't realized it and uh, then janet's intuitive guidance spoke to her again and she said to this man actually no it's not just your responsibility. It's the responsibility of us all four adults, actually. Jack's death was the result of a moment of inattention on all our parts. It's a remarkable thing to say. She wasn't taking all the responsibility, but she was taking her share. It took a long time for Janet to heal her grief. Neighbors helped, you know, a basket of eggs would show up on her doorstep or a bouquet of flowers. And Janet's marriage didn't survive the death of her son, but Janet did. And now she, she lives in a community, a small community, and um, when neighbors have someone dying, they call Janet. Yeah. She's one of the most remarkable hospice workers I know. Like we like to tidy up life's uncertainties, right? We, we like simple causes. We, we want such accidents like this one to be brought under our human control. We want somebody to be held accountable. We want the outrageous and the impossible to be understood.
we want to alleviate our sense of helplessness. But life, you know, it doesn't present itself in ways that are right and reasonable all the time. And the truth is we're rarely in control of such catastrophes or the twists and turns of life, especially not our own dying. I think ordinary people like Janet, like you and I, put courageous presence into practice in small and beautiful ways every day. I think there are lots of bodhisattvas among us, lots of them. Like I know this, this really brave man, Julio is his name, and he works in a big metropolitan hospital and he's kind of a... Um, nurse's aide sort of you know, he cleans up after after everybody else and and one of the things that he does is when there's been a code in a room which is quite chaotic and and such and sometimes people's chests are split open and you know tubes are placed etc uh, julio goes into the room to clean up basically everybody's left the room except the dying person the person who's died rather and julio goes over and he leans over and he whispers in their ear You've died. It's okay. I'm going to wash away all dust and confusion. Hmm. And then he goes around, he puts the whole room in order. He, you know, puts the, cleans up the sponges that are on the floor and closes the drawers to the cabinets where all the equipment is. And, and then he proceeds to bathe this person um, who's died. And, you know, some nursing supervisor jumps in the room and says, we need the room, hurry up. But his colleagues, the other nurses and nurses say, they know what Julio's doing. They know he's doing something sacred. And so they protect him. And they find some other way around what this supervisor wants. I think Julio's kind of bodhisattva, actually. So I wanted to talk tonight about courage, actually. And specifically, I, I wanna talk about three kinds of courage. And, and the first was that we're most familiar with is what we might call warrior courage, right? Sorry. Um, what we might call warrior courage. And we, you know, this is the one we're most familiar with. And, you know, we think about the bravery that's um, uh, related to emergencies. So we think of first responders or soldiers in war, you know, who demonstrate this kind of vigor and persistence, whose training is and beliefs and maybe sometimes their adrenaline allow them to take risks or override their fear, or at least not to be stopped by their fear. I think of a lot of physicians that I work with who in healthcare receive a very similar kind of training of pushing past their exhaustion. Yeah? But I think for some of us, you know, just getting out of bed in the morning, it takes warrior courage particularly if you live on the margins of society or you're sleeping on a sidewalk. This warrior courage that I'm speaking of, it's motivated by honor and loyalty and service and commitment and sometimes camaraderie, right? And it needs to be balanced with intelligence in its application because it has a shadow side to it, this warrior courage. And it can be aroused by shame or coercion or the need to control or 
a desire to gain approval or something like this. And it, it can lead to a kind of defensiveness and a false invulnerability, like where we suddenly think we're bulletproof, yeah. But fearlessness is not about eliminating or ignoring or pushing away our fear. It's about developing a capacity to be courageously present when these powerful states of mind and heart are presenting themselves. So that's worry or courage, right? And then there's what we could call courage of heart, right? Courage of heart is a different kind of fearlessness, but it requires just as much passion as the courage of a warrior. And we find this type of courage when we're lion-hearted, right? We use that expression sometimes. And we have this dedication to be with the truth of our experience, to, to not reject our experience, and instead to, to face what's right here, right now. And this courage of a strong heart, uh, it activates a kind of receptivity to be with what's happening. Um, to stay with what we want to avoid, actually. And I think this kind of courage of heart, it opens a deep compassion in us. Um, it allows us to realize that we all have fears. And like bodhisattvas, we can stand with others in fear. Then there's this third kind of fear, which is more difficult to understand. It's the courage of vulnerability. Excuse me, a third kind of courage, I want to say. It's the courage of vulnerability. You know, and that's the doorway to the deepest dimensions of our being. Now, mostly we associate vulnerability with weakness or, you know, being wounded or the susceptibility to being harmed, right? Those are all things that we imagine about being vulnerable. But I think the courage of vulnerability is what allows us to sit with someone whose child died in a car accident, you know, to listen really openly without bias. Um, the, courage, the courage of vulnerability allows us to acknowledge our fear uh, when we're starting a new venture in our life or a new relationship. So I don't think vulnerability is weakness. I think it's non-defensiveness. Yeah? Mostly we don't experience vulnerability. We, we experience our defenses against it. Right? We experience our defenses that we create against the harm. We don't actually feel the vulnerability, but the vulnerability itself, it's a little bit like permeability. Yeah? It's like it allows the world to impress itself on our soul, on our consciousness, on our, on our bones. It allows the beauty and the horror of the world to, to impress itself on us. So, I mean, think, think about it, you know, think about when you fall in love, right? I mean, is there anything more vulnerable than falling in love, right? I mean, it's it's full of uncertainty, right? And intensity and intimacy and, and truth-telling and, you know, being vulnerable means we're more sensitive. We're more impressionable, actually. And I think that what happens is this vulnerability 
the courage to be vulnerable opens us to the invulnerability of our essential nature, of our Buddha nature. And this invulnerability, it's not stoicism and it's not, you know, the invulnerability we usually think of in our culture, which is some stance against emotion or feeling we're impenetrable somehow or like teenagers feel they're invulnerable, yeah? This invulnerability is pure openness. You know, it's the undefended spaciousness of our nature. And I think when we step back and we allow the, the winds of fear to blow through us, there's no place for them to stick. No ground on which they can land. And we can drop the struggle and our unnecessary effort. And we can rest in a state of defenselessness, actually. And we can recognize that we're not separate from anyone, from anything. And the fear subsides and we realize that our basic essence, who we are, is never damaged, never sick, and never dies. I wanted to give you an example of being undefended. Jack Quinfield shared the story. We were having dinner one night, and he shared the story with me that he was um, uh, helping to facilitate this men's gathering that happens every year up in Mendocino. It has, well, people can gather anyway. And he teaches with Michael Mead, a really great storyteller, a wonderful mythologist, you know, and, and other people, Luez, and wonderful teachers. And the, the people, all kinds of men come to this gathering and they meet in this giant log, kind of, not a cabin, but a big room, you know, giant building. And all kinds of men come, but particularly who come are men coming back from, at least at this event, were men coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And guys that were in gangs, you know, in Compton and East Oakland and um, all over the place. And they gather in this, in the Redwoods. And one of the nights, what happens is everybody gathers in this room. And Michael Mead, this great storyteller, some of you know him, he starts telling stories. And he has this drum and he's beating this drum and he's telling stories, you know. And this one night he's telling a story. Um, well, I'll come back to that. He's telling a story. But before Michael tells his stories, what happens is the men that are gathered there, they, they start sharing. And um, and uh, this one kid, you know, God, this one this one kid, uh, he he steps out into the center of the circle. He's sixteen, you know, something like that. And uh, he starts telling the story how he's walking home in his neighborhood. He's in Compton, walking home in his neighborhood, and they're crossing in through another hood. And they see this car come down the road and the windows come down and the guns come out. And they just start firing. And he ducks behind a dumpster and his buddy, you know, his homie just tries to follow him, but he doesn't make it to the dumpster and his friend gets shot. And he's lying there and there's still firing going on and stuff. So this kid stays behind the dumpster, but he's calling to his friend. And in the middle of this room with all these men, he's telling this story and he just weeps. He just weeps. And then this uh, veteran, you know, this guy coming back from Iraq, he, he uh, steps out into the circle and he's the elder, right? He's 22 years old, 23 years old, 
right? Oh my God, what are we doing to our young men? And he steps out into the circle and um, <laughs> he says, you did right, man. You did right. You didn't leave him behind. You did right. And uh, then he just starts to tell a story about how he's in Baghdad somewhere and he's on patrol with his group, a group of small group of soldiers and um, this mob sort of gathers down on the road where he is and they don't know what's who's in this mob and so you know they give orders for people to stop and uh, everybody stops crowd disperses except one old man and this one old man keeps walking toward him just keeps walking toward him and he, he's trying to yell at the man stop stop and he's saying it you know in, in la different languages so this man will understand but he doesn't stop the man doesn't stop and he doesn't know if this man has bombs you know strapped to him or not he doesn't know and finally you know he raises his rifle and he shoots him and he kills the man he tells his story and the crowd goes wild because what he didn't understand, what he didn't know, was this old man was deaf and he couldn't hear. And he, that's why he didn't stop. Warrior courage. There's another story that, that I want to share with you. And it's about, it also takes place in a war, it takes place in Iraq. And, you know, it was in the New Yorker years a couple of years back, and it's written by this this writer who's writing. He's writing the story. He's telling the story, and he said, "On the morning of April third, I'm going to read it to you. On the morning of April third, as the army and the Marines were closing in on Baghdad, I happened to look up at what what appeared to be a disaster in the making. He was watching this 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 writer. He said a small unit of American soldiers." was walking along the streets of Najif when hundreds of Iraqis poured out of buildings on either side and they had fists waving and they were throats were taut and they pressed in on the Americans I think there were eight or ten of them and they were frantic and they were full of rage and um, the cameraman who was filming all this the, the uh, reporter was watching it on a video the cameraman who was watching all this he was also frightened and looking at this video the the writer said this is it you know this is what's going to happen you know someone's going to fire a shot and this is going to be the next melee massacre only in iraq and at that moment this american soldier steps forward this he's a lieutenant colonel and he's he's all you know tatted up and he's got his you know gear on and he steps past his men and he holds his rifle high over his head and then he turns the barrel down toward the ground and the writer said this was this incredibly striking gesture almost biblical and then he told his men to take a knee to have all his men take a knee and to point their rifles at the ground and his men must have thought he was crazy they would never do this you know but they also followed orders and all these men with this big, bulky, bally armor, body armor, they knelt down and they pointed their guns at the ground. And the crowd stopped. And the Iraqis fell silent. And their anger subsided. 
And the officer told his men to smile and to withdraw. And this, this writer, he finally found this, this lieutenant colonel. His name was Chris Hughes. He'd rotated home by this point, and he, he was somewhere in the Midwest, you know. And this writer came to interview him. He said, who told you to point your, the muzzle of your gun at the ground like that as a way to disperse a crowd? I mean, who told you to do that? Was it particular to Iraq? And he, he asked them all these questions, and, you know, um, this, this guy was like born in Iowa somewhere, this Lieutenant Hughes. He said, nobody taught him that. He said, no one told him how to disperse a crowd in an angry country like this. He said, except to use rotor wash from a helicopter or fire a warning shot. He said, but the problem with firing a warning shot is that then someone shoots back and then you shoot back and then you kill them. Yeah. He said that, you know, that day they'd been trying to um, meet with a, a grand Ayatollah there and he it was a delicate task that was very crucial and he thought that a gesture of respect was really called for, really important. Yeah. Lieutenant Chris Hughes, that was, that was incredible, incredible courage. When we get to know our fear, it's not just a dry fact-finding tour of our minds. That's not going to be sufficient, you know. We need a certain kind of courageous presence, to even to look. Can we befriend fear? Can we meet it with some degree of mindfulness? Can we touch our suffering and its causes with some compassion? Can we cultivate some kind of loving equanimity that will allow us to stay with what, what scares us? To find a place of rest, even with the fear. You know, there's a wonderful English pediatrician and psychologist. His name is Donald Winnicott. And um, he developed the term, the holding environment, the holding environment. And it's foundational to attachment theory and a lot of psychoanalysis. And he saw that the mother, particularly the mother's holding of a child was a prerequisite for that child's development, uh, for the child to grow up well. You know, it's like um, if you watch a toddler who's dying to walk, you know, and find its way down the sidewalk, um, and then it falls and scratches its knee, right? And then the mother or the mothering person scoops up this child and holds them and rocks them a little bit, and then sets down the child, sets the child down again. What happens often is that child can walk further. It can go further than the child or the mother first imagined, yeah. I remember with my own son when, shortly after he was born, actually, he was crying and he'd just gotten born, literally. And uh, the midwives and, and, and his mom were all trying to soothe him. And I came along and I said, you know, I know I'm just a guy, you know, but can I try? And, uh, and I scooped him up and I brought him outside and I, under the night sky, and I sang to him a song that I would always sing to him when he was in utero. And I rocked him. 
and I put him against my chest. And, and really what I did was I lent him my nervous system. That's what I did. And in the spaciousness of the outdoors, he calmed down. Yeah. I mean, imagine, if you will, if before we sat meditation, like we were practicing rocking and such as a preliminary to meditation, but suppose we, we before we started, we evoked uh, a holding environment that we thought of as our awareness as a holding environment that could hold everything, our fear, our sadness, our joy, all of it. Yeah. And imagine if we were, when we were meditating, you know, when, and um, we lose ourselves. We just remembered that. We just remembered this holding environment. Yeah. How might it change our sitting? How might it change the way in which we live? You know, the Metta Sutta, right, has that beautiful line that I often repeat at the beginning of my sitting. Even as a mother at risk of her own life watches over and protects her child, so with a boundless heart should we cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world. I believe, you know, strongly that we can feel awareness embracing us. We can feel the holding environment of awareness. And it can allow the fear and the pain and the ugliness to come out and show itself and be known. And we can feel the support of courage to go beyond our previously limiting beliefs, you know, or the things that keep us in place. Anyway, that's what I wanted to share with you tonight. I hope there's something in it that was useful for you. So I, I want to have some time just to talk with you now, and, you know, spend the remainder of our time just, just I want to know how this landed for you. Where did it land for you? Did it land in your belly when I was talking or in your heart or in your mind? Where did it land? And, and what's on your heart and mind as you've been listening to this? Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, Maggie will will call on you. You know how guys know how to raise your hand digitally by now, I'm sure. You know, it, on the bottom of your screen, there's a button that says reactions. If you have a new version of Zoom, you can see raise hand there. Or if it's an old version of Zoom, you can go to the section that says more and there you'll find uh, something else so Maggie I'm going to depend on you to handle that technology it's not something I can manage so you sure. call someone thank and, uh, you Frank it looks like Amy Amy okay Amy? hi 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 Amy uh, I I so resonate <clears throat> to what you've said about the willingness to sit yeah. and the courage to be vulnerable mm. and maybe then comes a permeability and I'm feeling afraid as I speak right now, but because I resonate to what you say, I'm going to go yeah, on. Stay with it for a minute. And you know, can I interrupt for a second, Amy? Sure. Don't talk about it. Don't, don't tell me what you were going to tell me. Just okay. Talk, talk from your experience. Okay. Let it, let it speak. 
Forget about the story. My experience from a near-death experience. Now you're telling me about it. What's was your experience that, now? What's your experience now? That there isn't a strong enough connection between my mind and my body and my breath to keep um, this sort of disembodied fear. Yeah. No. And it is something that I have been sitting with and watching it. Good. And when it arises, what what I've seen, whether it's, you know, uh, just when I'm really still, sometimes there's this fear that I'm going to lose myself. Yeah. That there's no words, there's no labels. Yeah. And I had the impulse to, you know, not be attached to that. And I, I don't allow myself to be deeply touched yeah. by fear before um, I'm turning away. I'm, I'm okay. turning away. I got it. I got it, Amy. So, so you know, just because I, I know our time is short, too, and I want to include other people. But so it's that's conditioned response, right? We have a, we have a, we've learned how to get disembodied, how to leave in moments of fear, flee our bodies in moments of fear. A lot of us have had that. Well, many of us, yeah. So the challenge, of course, is to practice being in your feet. I mean, do you have feet right now, Maggie? Or they, they're just there at the end of your legs, yeah? Mm-hmm. Can you actually put your attention in your feet? Mm-hmm. Can you sense into your toes? Yeah. Yeah, good. So those, that's a practice that's really useful for you. Feel your breath. Where do you feel your breath most vividly right now, Amy? Where is up, it high. up high. Up high. Okay. So you're saying that like there's something wrong with it up being up high. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. That's part of where the breath goes. Right. There you go. That's a really good one right there. That was a really good exhale right there. Okay. You see how easy that was to do that exhale? Nothing special. Mm-hmm. Nothing special. So there's no right way to breathe. There's no... Um, there's no problem in your having conditioning. You all, we've all had it, it's mm-hmm. different ones, but you, that's the conditioning you got. Mm-hmm. So the challenge, of course, is to get to know it, to see. Don't try and override it. Get to know the conditioning. Huh? Well, this happens to me. Well, when does it happen? You know, what do I notice about when it happens? Yeah, and and ask the question. This is a really important question, Amy. You write. You could write this one down. What else is here? When you're getting when you're getting really lost, you know, just ask what else is here. And it isn't to distract yourself; it's to let you know that this isn't all that's happening. You know that that my conditioned response isn't all that's happening. So ask that question in meditation. What else is here? Okay, that's really useful. Thank all you. Right. You're very welcome. Okay, um, Maggie, I'm counting on you. To- Okay. I see Seema. 
Um, okay, am I unmuted? First of all, Frank, it is so good to see you. I feel really wonderful seeing you sitting up and talking to us and knowing you've been through a difficult year. Um, I feel like your Dharma talk couldn't have been better timed for me. And maybe other people feel that way as well. I am right in kind of in that place that you were talking about, which is I'm trying to hang on to not being afraid of being vulnerable and letting go of my story and all of that. And what I find myself with are daily anxiety attacks and with I, which I intersperse with mindfulness meditation. And so I can breathe and I calm down and then I get them again. And um, sometimes with a really strong sense of that I'm swimming from the middle, of, I'm swimming nowhere. I'm going and swimming and I'm not getting anywhere because um, it's painful. But other, and other times I feel like I make these, have these amazing insights but then I don't know what to do with them. Um, I come from a, I have oh, just one more thing. And then I come from a very traumatic background as well from a family. And I'm, and I realized that that was then. And what's now is the, the conditioned part, the part that I'm 72. I just turned 72 and I'm still conditioned by what I was learning when I was five and two and 10 and Anyway, yeah, you're, you're, you're muted. Uh, there we are. Sorry. <laughs> um, so you described it well. You know, you, you sounds like you had a you know, traumatic history. And many of us have had that. And, and mm -hmm. we should honor that and be really attentive to that. You know, I, I think my, people who try to push through trauma are making a big mistake. Yeah, big mistake. And, you know, like you said, you might have had it from when you were very young. I mean, in Buddhist circles, you might have had it for lifetimes. You know, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But here it is conditioning you. And you can feel your ordinary mind, your regular conventional mind, is just full of conditions. That's what's happening. And much of what meditation practice is, is relaxing the conditions. It isn't actually getting away. It isn't getting rid of them. And, you know, it's relaxing around them. Like they're here. Huh. And they really take over sometimes. They really do. Yes. I know. For me, they do. You know, my, my friend Ramdas, he died this year or two ago now. And uh, we were having breakfast one morning. And he said to me, Frank, I was asking him about something similar. And he said, you know, all the stuff I've done, LSD, psychotherapy, gurus, I haven't gotten rid of one neurosis, not one. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, not a single one. He said, but my relationship to them has really shifted. You know, he said they're like schmooze now. They're schmooze. They're like little schmooze that move through my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really what I, what we're doing when we relax around the conditioning. We're shifting our relationship to to these things, to even to trauma. Yeah. And so respect the trauma, but ask the question I just suggested to the person before you. What else is here? What yeah. Else is here? Yeah. That's a it's a life saving question, Simon. 
Yeah. What else is here? And so, because all, everything contracts around that moment of that's reminiscent of other moments. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Is here? Don't try and push through it. That doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Gentle holding environment. Holding environment. Yeah. Like you know, this. Yeah. Okay. 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 Many blessings. Okay. Let's see. Maggie. She's got her hand through. I'm here. Where are you? Oh, there you are. Okay. Yes. Sorry, my, my strokes left me with a loss of vision, so I don't see very well. I can't hardly I can't see little squares. We have is it Allison? Allison on There we are. Okay. Hi. Thank you so much. It was such a beautiful experience sitting with you. Um, when you were speaking about courage and wonderful, illuminating stories you shared, I was so struck, I think, uniquely by the courage of a fully culpable person presenting themselves for the situation, the man who presented himself at the door of the worst case scenario and just allowed the door to be opened. It shocked me that 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 piece of it was like something I'd never quite felt in terms of what courage could be, is, and that that to me was the key for your friend to be allowed process in her grief and her moving forward to be able to not just be shut off in her grief, but to be almost granted a position of being able to, mm-hmm. I don't know, show, show a kind of mercy, have yeah. her own courage to yeah, they were both hold that. It was profound to me that yeah. dynamic and the possibility of that dynamic. Yeah. They were they, they were both courageous. Both were courageous. The man and, and so was Janet, you know? Yes. She said she looked through the screen door and she saw him. She knew immediately who he was. And then she saw the anguish in his eyes and his face and she thought, oh I, I have to let him in. Yeah. Very courageous act on both their parts. Yeah. We don't know what will come of our courage. And it isn't bravado. That's how we think of courage. We think of the shadow side of warrior courage as bravado. That's not it. That's not it at all. Um, can I ask you one question, Allison? Yes. So without a long story, just an exp- a few sentences, what's a moment when you were courageous? Anything can be, don't, you don't have to tell the story, just I turn toward fear. I, what is it? What's the moment? Every time I allow myself to feel the hurt that I actually feel uh-huh. and share it and don't just stuff it away, even when I feel like it's futile and foolish to share it. Mm-hmm. And I think or feel well, maybe just one more time, mm-hmm. it's worth it. Mm-hmm. 
Beautiful. So turning toward our own, your own fear and then making and the choice to share hurts. it. And your own hurt better. And then making yeah. the choice to share it. Yeah. Beautiful. You know, I was teaching a group of nurses once and I asked them all to do just what I asked you, Allison, to, and they couldn't come up with anything. They couldn't come up with anything. I said, wait a minute. If someone's choking in a restaurant, do you go over and do, you know, the Heimlich maneuver on them? Of course. You know, when someone comes into the ER and they're bleeding from head to foot, do you, do you care for them? Well, yeah, of course, but that's my job, they say. Yeah. Yeah, it's important to recognize that we have courage and to name it. And you just did. You just did beautifully. Thank you. Courage. There was the piece with the nurse that strikes me where I think that sometimes there's that sense of courage being the thing that we know what to do. Yeah. And I think I'm struck sometimes by the courage to face what we don't know what to do. Sure. And even if it's like, ooh, carry a gun or turn it the other way, it's so powerful. And But there's like a strength in that. And then I think about the courage to not know and to still be with. And I'm, that's what causes me terror and fear. <laughs> and so I'm struck by that idea around courage. Well, well, not knowing, and this is not just for you, this is for everybody. You know, ignorance is not not knowing. Ignorance is actually, we know something, but it's the wrong thing, and we insist on it. There's a lot of that going on in the world right now. Yeah, that's ignorance. Not knowing is open. It's spacious. It's full of wonder and discovery. And, um, and the mind isn't so full of its knowing, actually. So it has room for things to enter. Um, ignorance, you know, we talked earlier about the ordinary mind, you know, being full of our conditioning. And that's what gives rise to ignorance. You know, we believe all the conditioning. We, we don't look at it with fresh eyes. So, yeah, a don't know mind is a mind that has a sense of wonder, marvel. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I think you bumped your camera off. Oh, I did. Sorry. Hold on. Am I back? No, I'm not back. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. There. Like Sorry. Like I said earlier, I, I, I can't see and I do things. And when I move my hands around too much, I knock things away. Thank you for telling me. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Allison. But do we have time for a few more? I, I, I think we do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we do. I see happy. Happy? Happy. Yeah. Hello. Great name, happy. Thank you so much. I'm happy to meet you. Wonderful. Thank you. What's I think we heart? met at a Yeah, I think I was really touched by the uh your speak what you just share. And I think the one that really touched me is the courage of vulnerability. Yeah. Um because I guess like there's a part of me, I mean, I would say I'm at the beginning of a new love relationship uh, and I can feel that there's a part of me that's scared to open up to mm -hmm. someone so vulnerably. Mm -hmm. And I feel it's sort of blocking me from feeling the love he gives me. Like I can, I can see it. I can see it through my eyes. <laughs> through his actions but I'm like you know I kind of couldn't feel it in my body sometimes and I think that's also a blockage for me to like give him love and I think it is part of the vulnerability challenge of like there's a part of me is like 
oh, I don't want to think he's so important so that I wouldn't get so hurt. So I think it's some old conditioning. But yeah, I'm curious about what you, any you know, suggestion you have on that front of like how to, how to open up to this vulnerability, how to have that courage. Um, well, it's important to be intelligent in your vulnerability. Yeah. And that doesn't mean like you wait until the other one's other person has really come forward. You now he comes forward, his vulnerability, then you'll be willing to show yours. Um, you know, I think it's important to be intelligent though. You know, we don't want to, we don't just spill our guts all over the place. Mm. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you try a little bit, you know, I don't know. When I was in school, I studied biology and I don't remember anything about it. I don't know. Happy. Happy. <laughs> But the one thing I can remember from biology, and it's the only thing I can remember, is something called osmosis, where Mm. cells, semi-permeable cells, interact with each other. Mm. They go across the semi-permeable membrane. And that's a kind of vulnerability. It's a kind of permeability that happens. Mm. And so it's like that. So we, we, we we have to realize that vulnerability is happening all the time. But we have to mm. redefine vulnerability. We have to redefine it from weakness and um, uh, susceptibility to harm to something more like permeability. Yeah, like I was just mm. describing with osmosis. I think that helps us. Um, and then, you know, you could play with it. You could play with it with each other. Like, okay, tell me something you're really embarrassed about. You know, and you can just start <laughs> being playful with each other about it. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that your capacity, mostly our vulnerability, as I said earlier, we're, we're mostly experiencing our defenses against it. We're not actually mm. in the vulnerability. The vulnerability is just open. Mm. Yeah. So, so, you know, play with it a little bit. And then, you know, in, your, in yourself, you know, when you're doing your meditation, just mm, what's vulnerability? What's it like? Huh? Suppose I didn't push mm-hmm. anything away now. Suppose I welcomed everything and didn't push anything away. Mm. Yeah, what would it be like? Huh? What would what what would I need in order to do that? I would need a strong back, kind of courage and equanimity, mm. and I would need a soft mm. front. I'd need compassion and tenderness and altruism. Yeah. So you could practice mm. that way: sitting with strong back, soft front, strong back, soft front. Okay. That's a way to think about it. My friend John Halifax, uh, Roshi in Santa Fe, she uses as a guided meditation on strong back, soft front that I often use. Anyway, that's a good place to, to, uh, to end, actually. Thank you, Happy. So, Maggie, I think we are, we've come to our time. Is that correct? I, I have no yes, sense. Yes, we have. Yes. Oh. Wow, good for you, Frank. I have to congratulate myself all the time because of my strokes and where they happened. I have no sense of time or date. I couldn't tell you if today's Monday or Saturday. And I, um, I, uh, my brain gets pretty scrambled around certain kinds of activities. So I, I've lost most of my vision and I don't know what time it is. But intuitively, I thought we were pretty close to the end. So that's good. We are right at 7.30. Oh, yes, right on the dot. Thank you so much for your wisdom and teaching tonight. Thank you, Maggie. And thanks to everybody in the Sangha. I I always, I really love San Francisco Insight. So I'm happy to be back with you. And uh, 
thank you for your trust. Thank you for your trust. Thank you very much. An honor, sir. An honor to sit with you. Well, it's a delight to sit with you. Hey, Maggie, can we turn on everybody's microphones? Or yes. let everybody turn on their microphones? And so we can say goodbye. Maybe we can break the internet, you know? If we say <laughs> hey, I love you a lot. We'll, we'll break the internet. Love you, Frank. Be great. Love you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Uh, Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. 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 Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.